This police sergeant was shot in a totally unprovoked ambush attack. He's here to talk about the shooting, his recovery afterwards, and how it inspired him to help injured first responders and those injured by violence throughout the community. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. In the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, we are joined by special guests talking about their experiences, their realities of investigating crimes, plus those who have experienced horrendous trauma, police, first responders, military, and victims of crime share their stories. Hi, I'm John J. Wiley. In addition to being a broadcaster, I'm also a retired police sergeant. Be sure to check out our website, letradio.com, and also like us on Facebook, Search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and be sure to click like. Calling us from the great state of Missouri, Sergeant Charles Lowe on the phone. Uh, Sergeant Lowe, thanks so much for joining us on the Law Enforcement Show. Very much appreciated. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. I definitely appreciate it. This has been something that's been in the works for a while. We had his wife on a show a, a while ago. By the way, if you haven't heard that episode, look for the one with Kelly Lowe, a very powerful woman uh, doing some great things. And she said, you got to talk to my husband. And we've been trying to make this happen for a couple months, to be honest with you. So I'm glad we finally got this uh, opportunity nailed down. Yes, sir. Me too. A lot of good things are happening. So I'm just excited about everything that's been happening. Well, you're a career law enforcement officer. You've been doing this for quite a while, haven't you? Yes, actually, uh, in February of this year, actually, I just hit my 20 years of service, so it's an exciting time for me and my family as well. Are you in a department where you can retire at 20, or do you have to go to 25? Actually, I am on a department. I can retire at 20, yes, sir. Oh, you're a short-timer where, like, <laughs> don't mess with me. I can leave a bowl of papers in today. There you go. <laughs> that was what we always called freedom back in the day. It was like, we're so jealous uh, of the guys. They're old-timers. <laughs> We're going to talk about some serious things. For people that don't know, Sergeant Lowe was ambushed and shot in a totally unprovoked attack. When was that? It uh, actually was July 2015, July 14th of 2015 to be exact. And I saw videos of it. We're going to try to get copies of video. I I think it was from a surveillance camera in Mm -hmm. the area. And these sort of things happen so fast they almost seem to come out of nowhere we're going to talk about your shooting in depth in a moment but one of the things that i do know about you is this has inspired you to do some things to try to help injured law enforcement officers injured first responders and people of all walks of life who have been injured by acts of violence correct yes absolutely what's the name of your organization the name of organization is project hurt H-U-R-T, and the HURT stands for Healing, Uplift, Restore, and Transition. And where can people get more information about Project HURT? We have a website, uh, projecthurt.org, O-R-G. And we're also very uh, active on Facebook as well. And is that just look for Project HURT on Facebook? Absolutely. Yes, sir. All right. We'll talk more about that later on because they're doing some pretty outstanding things that you don't want to miss. I want to go back to was it 2015. You have been on the job, I guess, at that point, probably about 15 years, somewhere around that. Correct. About 15 to 16 years at that point. Correct. So you're by no stretch a rookie. When you've been on the job and policing for a long time in a, in a major department, you've seen pretty much everything by that point. And it's kind of hard to, for people to 
launching unprovoked surprise attack on you, isn't it? I would like to think so. But like I say, sometimes things beyond our control. Yeah. I, that's exactly the point I was, I was getting at is no matter how good you are, no matter how much experience you have, no matter how much training you do, things are going to pop up that you would totally unexpect. And at least for me, when they happen to me, it's like, I, I can't believe this is happening. Correct. It definitely was a moment of uh, surreal. Like, did this really just happen or am I going through this? Like you say, it happened so fast and I definitely was in the, the tunnel vision and the slow motion and all that played out in my head as, as things happened. What was happening? It was nighttime, I believe. Yes, it was. It literally was like 4.30 in the morning. Kind of to set the tone. I, I had previously worked a regular police department shift. I got the two of them in, and then I went straight to my extra duty or, or secondary, as we call it in our area. And uh, the premise of the, the overtime or secondary or, or a moonlighting, if you will, is to hang out in this neighborhood. It's an inter- entertainment district in, in the Midwest of Missouri. A lot of bars, clubs, restaurants, etc. And pretty much the premise is to make sure these businesses don't get messed with. Most of the businesses have glass fronts. So in the past, people have you know thrown glass and, you know, on things to, to damage a lot of property and, and burglarize these places. So they hire all through the policemen to hang out up there and keep all these evildoers away. And that's something that we did in Baltimore, too, that was sanctioned by the city. They knew about it. They had to have the permission of the city and the department. And it was all on the up and up. It wasn't something that was done underhanded or on the slide. No, correct, correct. No, it's something we, we, we sign up for through the department. And then you kind of like put your hours in through a schedule, if you will, and you go get your hours from there. Were you in uniform at the time? Yes, sir. Full uniform. And were you in a departmental vehicle or were you like standing on the street or what were you doing? So I actually was in my personal vehicle, uh, but there was uh, moments where I would have to do, we call it like doing a round. So I make sure all the doors are locked and I was in the back of the, in the back of the area I was in, it was a patio area, I had to secure all, all, kind of, all of it little area or premises if you will and then uh, once I secure it you pretty much kind of stay awake at that point because it's pretty up until that point it was a pretty lame secondary right it's just an mm-hmm. easy way to make extra money but you're there for a good purpose and so the toughest part of that, that extra duty really was staying awake oh. that time of morning I got memories of midnight shift. I hated midnight shift. Well, even when I was a rookie, just trying. And it was so non. It was like nonstop busy. Then all of a sudden, someone flipped a switch, and it went to absolute dead quiet. And yes. then the closer you get yes. to six a.m., it's like the harder it is to stay to stay awake. Correct. Absolutely. To tell you a really quick story, I was driving a police car, getting ready to head back to our district, uh, working the midnight shift, and first vehicle at a red light. And you know how when you fall asleep, you sometimes hear sounds in the background and you incorporate them in your dreams? Yeah. Well, apparently I fell asleep with a red light in the police car and the light had turned green and people were blowing a horn at me to, to move. And some guy came and rapped on the window like, are you okay? I was like, what? What? It, it was the hardest thing in the world staying awake. Yes, Absolutely. And some people thrived on it. I always found it difficult. So you were in a quiet neighborhood at once... Things shut down. You're basically keeping an eye on all the businesses. Bank, I'm sure everything is secure and quiet and nothing bad going on. And it's not an environment where you'd expect something violent to happen, correct? No, no. Like I say, in this particular neighborhood uh, that this happened in, actually, is some of the 
the, the wealthiest and, and more well-to-do individuals that live in this particular neighborhood. So it's about far, a far cry from uh, anything that I would expect uh, for this, this type of activity to happen. Let me just say that. And that goes to a point that I often tell people. Uh, as a matter of fact, I saw someone post something on on Facebook today, and they're talking about Chicago, and they're talking about how not all of Chicago is violent. There's some very, very nice neighborhoods. And I really mm-hmm. wanted to reply back to them. Yeah, it's a nice neighborhood, but you forget violent criminals steal cars and they go to nice neighborhoods. So really, you could be in a really nice neighborhood, a crime-free neighborhood, and you could be in a fight for your life with a matter of moments. Absolutely. And what happens, you know, here in Missouri, especially in my department, a lot of neighborhoods become um, kind of property-rich environments for those that want to kind of make it easy, uh, like you let you steal a car, do a burglary, unfortunately try to rob somebody, stuff like that. So our presence in these entertainment districts or areas are really high because it is a private rich environment. And sometimes people people get really comfortable kind of they kinda let that guard down, they won't lock their doors, there's a person in the car, stuff like this. And so as a police department that really makes our job a little harder sometimes to to keep people safe when people aren't doing all the great safety measures all the time. Well, a lot of times people think, it's not going to happen to me. I'm in a great neighborhood or I'm in a tourist environment where a lot of tourists yeah. go. And they have no idea. And you used a great term, Charles, is that a target-rich environment. One thing I've learned, even through nature and watching documentaries, mm-hmm. even the biggest predators, the strongest predators, let's use a lion as an example, they wait for the gazelle, the impala, that's got a little bit of a limp. They look for yes. the, the the prey that's going to least likely put up a fight that they get the most reward from because the slightest chance of injury can be death for them. Uh, and it's not much different with human beings. When you have people who are looking for easy targets that are violent people, everybody is potential prey. We're talking with Sergeant Charles Lowe about the night he was ambushed and shot. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John, the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T Radio Show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. I am Meg Marie O'Rourke from Harmony with Food. Do you ever wonder what foods you should or should not be consuming based on your own unique needs? At Harmony with Food, we are now able to determine exactly what foods we should or should not be consuming through advanced testing. Test, don't guess is the motto at Harmony with Food's BioUnique Boutique program. It has never been easier than now to determine what food, drinks, and supplements you need for your individualized needs. Head over to HarmonyWithFood.com and click on the testing tab. This portion of the Law Enforcement Today radio show is brought to you in part by Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Everyone's welcome at the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page, where you'll find fun, informative, and enjoyable posts daily. Purebred, mixed breeds, rescues, we love them all. Be sure to like the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Return to our conversation with Sergeant Charles Lowe calling us from Missouri. He was shot in an ambush attack while working secondary employment or secondary duty as a uniformed police officer. The night this happened, or I should say early morning, we're talking, what, right around 4 o'clock in the morning time frame? 
Correct, Jack. Actually, it was about four thirty in the morning. And really, nothing is happening at that time. It's it's a dead time, pretty much everywhere. Yes, it was. It got pretty uh, slow, if you will. And uh, like I say, pretty much, I'm just literally almost watching the grass grow at this point. But in the neighborhood, just kind of just kind of sitting there. So you're sitting there in in your personal car, in uniform, keep an eye on these businesses in this entertainment district of the area where you work as a police sergeant. And what happened next? So I see two guys standing on a corner, uh, maybe 60 to 80 feet from where I was parked. Uh, now I'm sitting there in the middle of this, this uh, entertainment district. I'm in the middle of the street, parked right in front of the fire hydrant, across the street from the glass front businesses. So about 80, 60 to 80 feet from me, just to the east of me, I see two guys standing on the corner, right next to one of the the, uh, the bars. Uh, now they really weren't paying particular attention to me, but they did kind of glance over at me. So if you, you got to put your mind in a time frame. So this is July 2015. This is about ten months after Ferguson. So community relations with people were were still pretty tense. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people were still very confrontational. If you just even ask them a question, like, you know, what's your pedigree information? A lot of aggression. And so it's 4.30 in the morning. I see these two guys standing there. And I look over at me. They continue talking. Uh, then literally as soon as I saw them, every hair of my body stood up and had goosebumps. And I got all this anxiety in my head and stomach about it. my stomach. And I can't figure out why I feel so, and basically anxiety feel about their presence. I'm just looking at them. I they were giving off those vibes, right? Where you, it's making the radar, the alarm bells go off in your head. Something's not right with these cats. Yes, exactly. All, all the warning signs going off. But I don't know what I'm looking at yet. Because right now, it's just two guys sitting on the corner. So I'm, I'm scratching my head like, when I'm having this, this overwhelming feeling, right? And so the guys continue talking maybe another 15, 20 seconds. Then they walk down the street. They make a right and just go off in the darkness. And so my anxiety went down for a second. As soon as they went off in the door, I guess what to see anymore. I literally heard the voice of God say, put your vest back on. So in July, in July 2015, like many cities around Missouri and around the United States, it's very hot and humid. And even like this particular night, it had to be like 90 degrees this night. You know, it was 4 in the morning. It was just a hot, muggy night, hot, muggy day. And like I said, I just was hot in my, in my uniform. I already worked a, a, a long shift with the police department. I said, got out there and came straight here. At this point, I just want some relief. Well, I don't. I, I don't blame you at all. It was one of the worst things in the world wearing that that soft body armor, and in summertime it gets so hot and smelly. It and it comes right up from under your shirt. It it's, yes. it's like I, I could not wait to take that thing off, and it was almost like a, a mental undressing for me, transitioning to husband father mode when you took the velcro yes. the soft body armor okay i can change my mindset a little bit so i can see that you want to take it off when you have a chance and but something you said god told you let's put this yes. back on let's not waste time something's not right here correct so I had, back then i had outside vest cover so now my, my vest is, is in the patch of my car so i'm looking at my vest like why did i have why did i just hear that right so now i'm, I'm battling with god like why do you put my vest back on so like, like a spoiled little kid, I laugh at myself now. I'm like, all right, God, I put it back on. Just leave me alone, right? So I put my vest back on, strap back on. And literally five minutes later, I see the same two guys standing in the corner. But they're, now they're backing to me and they're looking up the street. But, it's, but I can't see what they're looking at because my, my, my view is blocked by the building. So at about five or ten seconds, they're by a third 
uh, male that comes down, kind of kind of walks down to him, and they kind of greet each other. They kind of glance over at me. Once again, the anxiety came back. Butterflies must have came back. So now I'm sitting up in my in my front seat of my car. I didn't get out. I'm sitting up in my car trying to figure out what am I looking at. Because anxiety came back, and it's it's, a, it's on high. Like I'm on red alert right now. I'm just looking at them. It's just three uh, black males sitting on the corner, just standing there. Nothing particular about them, just standing there. They continue talking, maybe another 15, 20 seconds. They walk down the street again and actually turn up the block. And so, relations being so so tense back back then, like say 10 months after Ferguson, my mindset for a second was to get out of the car and ask the guys, hey, you look for the bus stop or, well, you know, you guys, you need help, I see you circling the block. But I, I thought about, you know what? I don't feel like aggression. Right. I don't feel like hearing officer why you harassing us. We heard that so much oh, back then. Oh that, yeah, it was nonstop. Yeah, and and, and, and and literally, you know, the area I'm in is less than five miles from Ferguson, right? So it was still very tense. So I was like, you know what? I just don't be adversary tonight. So I was gonna let them let them be, let them figure out where they need to go. I don't know if that'll change anything, but I kind of think about that as it played some of the things played out in my head. And, but and so the, they, the whole time, people understand you're in you're in your personal vehicle, but you're in your police uniform. Yes, and people absolutely. can see that you're in your police uniform. I mean, it, it wouldn't be a great mystery, would it? Correct. Not only were were my lights on, my front lights, but I was right underneath a street light. I didn't. My car didn't have tinted windows. And so my uniform and everything was full food to be seen by anybody that wanted to look. I wasn't hiding uh, anything about me that night. I don't find this unusual at all, but I'm going to try to talk to people who've never been in police work and, and say, there's something about these guys' behavior that made my police instincts raise the alarm bells in my head if something wasn't right. I can't quite explain it, but when I talk to other police and they say, yeah, I know exactly what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's not, it's not, people love to go and, oh, it's racial profiling. It's this, is that. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got something to do with the people's behavior and the way they carry them. You know what it is a lot of times, Charles? It's the way they won't look at you. That's a true story. You know, because when you're you're police in uniform, people love to like, we called it signify back in the day. They love to acknowledge you and say, hey, you know, what's going on? Or you ain't nothing or whatever. When they purposely do their best not to look at you or almost make it look like they're looking at you sideways, that's like a big red flag. Yes. And I don't know what particular they were doing, but my body reacted to presence immediately, and it, it, it reacted so like say so strongly. I knew I didn't even know what I was looking at quite yet. Cause it's not like they had a gun in their hand, you know. They didn't have cop killer shirts and underwear, just giant pants, t-shirts, and shorts. Like that's all I'm looking at. So I'm just trying to see or try to figure out at that point what the heck is going on. And by the way, criminals don't wear signs that say, hey, I'm a criminal. I'm a drug dealer. Although, back in the day, a lot of them wear outfits that only drug dealers would wear. It made it easier. Yeah. And, and drive a vehicle that no one else can afford in the neighborhood, but they got it. So, But everybody else, especially people who are doing street crime, don't want their presence known. Again, we go back to the predator and prey. When they're yeah. trying to size up potential prey, they do not want to alert people that they are planning violence. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. 
This portion of the Law Enforcement Today radio show is brought to you in part by Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Everyone's welcome at the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page, where you'll find fun, informative, and enjoyable posts daily. Purebred, mixed breeds, rescues, we love them all. Be sure to like the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. missed past episodes of the law enforcement today show never fear you can listen to them online just go to our website lawenforcementtoday.com or download our free app also available on our website that's lawenforcementtoday.com back to our conversation with sergeant charles Lowe, police sergeant charles Lowe, back in 2015 uh, ambushed and shot in a totally unprovoked attack uh, charles you're talking about all the setup and all the things about these guys behavior time place location the way they're carrying themselves that the alarm bells are going off your head and you heard what you described as the voice of god saying put your soft body armor on put your vest on and you yes. did thankfully i did yes sir so what happened next so after the guys kind of circled the block twice after the second time like I say after after the first time i put my vest on and it circled me the second time i still stayed in my car I just trying to process why I got why I was excited about the presence. All of a sudden, maybe five minutes after the same time I saw these guys, I see a four door Ford comes off the street that they were standing by. It's coming my direction. Uh, I'm not alone by the car, in particularly. I just kind of laughed at the car because as, as the car got closer to me, the car kind of jerked like it was a stick shift, like somebody had missed missed a clutch, like it was jerking. And I remember looking at the car, kind of laughed like. <laughs> Some guy missed some guy sleep missed a clutch, right? Then all of a sudden this car which I thought would just drive past like all the other cars do, you know, in the in, in doing this extra duty. Also out in front of me. So now I sit up in front of my car like what's going on. So my first thought was, I'm in an entertainment district. Uh, you know, the reality is there's a lot of, you know, yuppies. Aggie thought a young man got a call in different directions. Yep. Aggie, like a really silly question. Like, yep. you know, those are law enforcement. Sometimes people ask you this question, questions at different times. That's actually what I thought. But then I was alone by even more guys like, if you just want to ask me a question, why don't you pull me on the side of me? I was the only car on the whole street, on that side of the street. Why don't you just pull me on the side of me? Why don't you block me in? And I can't see inside their vehicle yet because they have tinted windows. So now my. All the the goosebumps are out. All my, my hands on my, my, my my hands on top of my holster. I'm just trying to process all of this. I'm looking at. So finally, their passenger door swings open. Their don't light comes on. Now I finally can see inside the vehicle. I look over the passenger. The passenger had a uh, face and body turned away from me. Uh, only thing I recognize of the passenger is the silhouette of his clothing, which matched one of the guys that was just standing on the street. I look at the two guys in the back seat. Which sort of the same two guys I just saw with the, the guy in the passenger seat, the three guys that were just standing out there five minutes before. I kind of scanned over the driver. The driver is kind of looking behind the, the rear seat at me. And the only thing I think in my head is, well, who the heck is that guy? But he turns his head real fast, like he doesn't want to look at me. Right. So I, when I glance back over at the, the passenger, like, what the heck is this problem? By the time I glance back over the passenger, the passenger starts to turn his head toward me. As he turned his head toward me, uh, I realized he has a bandana, a black bandana wrapped around his face. As his hand gets out of the car, his hand, his right hand drops. He has a gun in his hand. He immediately starts shooting. Either his first or second shot hit me on the right side of my chest. I knew I was shot. So at that point, I'm, I, I immediately start praying. 
in my head, uh, it felt like my there was molasses between my gun and the holster. It felt like it took forever to get me to a raised pistol. So I finally get my gun out. He's in the middle of my car now. I know I'm hit. At this point, I'm like, I'm praying to God to keep me uh, alert during this gunfight and, and to keep me alive. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think I'm thinking about it at this point. Is my son, who in July after 15, was 19 months old. So I'm thinking, God, keep me kind to this gunfight because if I die, this is your will, God. My son won't even remember me. So I'm praying. Keep me alive doing this. So he, as, as he's shooting at me, I realize a couple things as I'm praying, and I'm still shooting at him. I don't know my rounds will even penetrate my windshield, but I know his rounds are coming in. So I'm like, I, I, I got to do something. So I'm just shooting through my, my, my front windshield at, at, at the suspect at this point. He's sliding over to my left. So at this point, he started off on my passenger side of my car, but he's sliding over to my driver's side. And all thing I'm thinking is, he's coming around to give me a headshot. He's coming around to my driver's side. So I'm like, all right. So I'm doing everything at this point. I the thought came to head. you that this guy is, is not just shooting at you. He's he's moving towards trying to kill you to a kill shot. Yes, absolutely. And that's a, that's um, a, a, a startling feeling and revelation we always say and people say when you hear please say i i feared that this i feared I for my, my life. life yeah and there's only no other way to describe it when you get the realization this this person's actually trying to murder you that's the yes. only way you can describe it. i can't i've never found another term that fits that and this was me this particular night yes it was so i'm processing all of this I realize he's sliding over. So now he's perpendicular to me. He's literally standing right above my hood, still shooting at me. And I'm trying to figure out, it does, I'm shooting at him, but it seems like uh, my rounds are even hitting him or, or even affecting him. So at one point while I'm shooting at him, doing my shooting fire, he kind of ducks down. When he pops back up, things are moving in so slow motion. His bad, I see his bandana fall off his face when he pops back up. And so I'm like, all right, I see his face. I remember I was taking a, like a snapshot of that moment when the bandana fell off his face. The only thing I think about is, God, keep me kind this long enough so I can tell the truth what this guy looks like. Right. That's the only thing I'm thinking about. And so, he starts to, I start, continue shooting at him. He starts to run off a little bit. As he's running off, I'm like, oh, good, finally, he stopped shooting at me. But as he, he runs off, he, he lets off one more round kind of over his shoulder. And he continues to run off as he's shooting. As he does this, I'm so hyper-vigilant of everything that's going on right now. I can see the round or projectile leave his, leave his gun. And, and it's coming right to my driver's side window. Besides the video of my, my shooting, I also have some of the still photos from each of you. And you can see the round that hit my driver's side window. I'm looking at this round, him out coming toward me, and I'm, I'm thinking to God, all right, God, this is my headshot. All right, protect me, God. I'm praying, I'm praying. I'm like, all right, God, I'm preparing for impact. As I watch the round hit the glass of my driver's side window, and by the grace of God, it made a strange left turn, and all of a sudden, ended up hitting the, the front molding of the inside of my car. It made a crazy right, I mean, a crazy left turn. And to this day, I still can't explain it, but I do thank God every day that that bullet didn't continue straight. Because right. that would have been a headshot. Yes, it would have been. And you already shot at this point. Yes, I was shot on the right side of my chest. 
one of the things you talked about in this attack, and I've heard this from so many people, and I can tell you in my own scenarios, situations of deadly force where people are shooting at you, time for me totally slowed down. It's like a time warp. And I didn't hear things uh, in the background the way I should. Um, and I didn't focus on anything else but the, the threat. You could have had the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders marching to my right and I'd have no idea because I was so focused on the imminent threat. But one of the things you said, Charles, that, that really hit home for me is these like real quick little tiny pocket prayers. I don't know how to describe them in the way. And yes. uh, if people had any idea how often I prayed in a patrol car, the worst is like preparing to go to on, on uh, drug raids or, or search and seizure yeah. warrants where you know Correct. there's potential for violence. That was always a lengthy prayer. But when bad stuff was happening, when stuff hit the fan, it was a real quick, God help me. Yes. And I can't describe why, but you just know that this is a bad situation. Correct. Absolutely. So this guy has shot at you about how many times at this point? So at this point, um, including his last shot at you ran off, he shot at me six times. That's a that's an awful lot. And by the way, and I don't have the exact statistics, but for the majority of police-involved shootings or officer-involved shootings is the term they use, they're within five to seven feet, and they're over with in two or three seconds. Yes. So to have someone in a prolonged gunfight, and yes, six, 10, 15, 20 seconds is a, an eternity in a gunfight. Yes, uh, we're talking with Police Sergeant Charles Lowe, talking about the night he was ambushed and shot in an unprovoked attack. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Want to be a guest on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show? Simply contact us. It couldn't be easier. You can send us a message on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show page or email j at letradio.com. That's j a y at letradio.com. I'm John J. Wiley, uh, joined on the phone with uh, Police Sergeant Charles Lowe. To recap, if you're just joining us, he was ambushed and shot in an unprovoked attack in uh, Missouri in 2015. When we left uh, before the break, Charles, you talked about six shots being fired by him and uh, that you weren't sure you're, and that's a common theme for us, that your gun doesn't work or the bullets aren't hitting them or what, I don't know if I'm hitting bricks in the background or what I'm doing. At least that was for me. The guy took off. What did you do at that point? So basically what I did at that point, I'm just trying to process all the stuff in my head. I remember putting the car in drive. I remember uh, literally driving the car with my knees. Uh, I had with my other left hand, I was talking to the dispatcher on my mentor radio. I told dispatcher I was shot, told him my location, I told dispatcher, you know, what was going on. And so when the shooting started, like I said, my windows were rolled up, so it was a loud, loud ring in my ear. So it, the dispatcher literally sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher, like, walk, 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 walk. And so I knew officers were en route because I could hear them key up from time to time in between the pauses of the dispatcher. But I couldn't understand what they were saying either. I just knew somebody was en route. So I followed behind the the, uh, the individual that shot me, maybe about a half a block. He ended up ducking off in a parking garage. And so I ended up driving back around the, the, the neighborhood, looking for the, the car that the other two guys are in. By the time I drove back, they all were gone. And so literally, uh, I got out the car, 
I looked to the west of my shooting star, my location where the shooting started, and eight police cars, EMS, all showed at the exact same time. And so, first, said the officer wrote, ran, ran up to me and said, hey, where'd he go? I said, hey, I think he's in the parking garage. Next to the officer said, hey, soldier, he shot. I literally take off all my, my equipment, take off my vest, my shirt, my duty belt, kind of doing the hokey pokey in the middle of the street. Yep. EMS officers kind of had a flashlights out. Said, Sarge, where you shot at him? I don't know. I, I think I'm hit somewhere. I hear one of them say, hey, Sarge, I see, I see blood. So I look down on the one side, and it's kind of blood kind of trickling down. I look at EMS, and I, I said, and I, I don't know what they're supposed to look what look or feel like, right? And EMS said, I look at it for a second, and like, I don't know, but you're in the hospital, right? Because I see the blood. Uh, so I kind of walked, kind of took a side step right back where my equipment was at, and I see my vest. It's hard to describe, but the top part of my vest almost looks like a, a crumbled up sheet of paper. It's really hard to describe. And so I'm looking at my vest like, hell? So I kind of straighten my vest out a little bit, and then I straighten it out, I see a gold round sitting in the back of the vest, right? So I put the vest down. I look up, look up at everybody. I said, wow. I think my, my vest took the round. Everybody turned white as ghost, right? So I didn't know if I was dead or alive. By the grace of God, like I say, that round did hit the vest. The x-rays were negative, and literally within an hour of me getting shot, I was at home watching news clips of what had happened to me. And it's still in my head, was still surreal. Like, well, why is this happening? All these things were, were in my head. To play the next 10 to 12 days out, you know, uh, I've been to other shootings, and I remember telling my wife, like, you know, just give me some time to process what happened. Right. And and uh, my wife's very patient. Like I said, she'd been a, a, a veteran, a spouse, if you will. At that point, you know, uh, 16 plus years, almost 16 years on the police department. So she said, okay. But, you know, those that know my wife, she'd be very direct. So maybe about 10, 12 days after my shooting, wife comes to me uh, and says, hey, let's go back to the neighborhood where we got, got shot because there's a, there's a dessert place we like to go to. And we used to go there, we used to frequent this dessert place before. And so, you know, this place right now is not, not a good place for me. So I'm like, no, I don't, I don't go back there, right? So she comes back a little bit later and says, hey, I bet your son loves to go back to the neighborhood and hang out by that water fountain. And that water fountain was like 40 feet from where I got shot. So I'm like, no, Kelly, that's not a, I don't think I feel good about that, right? So literally, she comes back the last day, same day, like, hey, how about you just drive me to get some desserts and cupcakes? And then we'll get out of there real fast. And, and, so, and really, this I, I know your wife. This had yeah. nothing to do with the cupcakes or dessert. Had no, nothing to do with that. It was about getting you back on a saddle, so to speak. Yes, and I didn't know it at the time. I thought my life was tripped. I was like, "Why is she so persistent about getting these dang cupcakes?" I don't mean, but I must admit, when she gave me the last idea to driving up there, I'm like, "The fat kid and me kind of wanted some cupcakes, right?" <laughs> so I'm like, "Right now, I'm craving cupcakes. You're killing me. Yeah. I stop talking about it." <laughs> So we, we go up there, uh, and, and, and usually you run in, run out, literally gone in like 90 seconds. And so this particular day, uh, real fast, um, the cupcake place was packed, like 20 people in there. So my wife looks at me, she must have to turn in my face, she says, I swear I'll be right back, right? So I'm sitting there with my son in the car, he's strapped in the back, I sit in the car about two minutes, the anxiety is getting so high, I just can't do it. I grab my son, we kind of walk around just a little bit, uh, I had to walk through the water fountain, where, 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 where my wife had mentioned, I didn't think I could do it. And I found it literally is like 40 feet from where I got shot. 
So I, I remember playing with my son there for, for like a really minute and kind of looking over in the area where I got shot and my anxiety just getting higher and higher. I'm sort of sweat. I'm like, okay, I, I can't do this, right? So I grabbed my son, 19 months, walk back to the car. I shot him in. As I'm walking back to the driver's side, wife's coming out with the cupcake. She holds one to the seat. We can get out of here, right? So it's starting to get dark in this particular neighborhood, and she's driving down the street with the lights on. Another car wants my spot, so they put their blink on, take my spot. I'm in the entertainment area, so people walk in front of my corner and behind my car and the side of my car. I literally feel like the whole world's coming on top of me, and I lost it. I remember screaming at the top of my lungs, and to this day, I have no idea what I was screaming about. All that I remember is my wife touching my shoulder, saying, Charles, what are you doing? Your son's in this car. I turn around. My son's crying profusely. I felt like the size of an ant. I felt like nothing. All that I remember doing is looking at my wife and I asked her, what just happened? My wife looked at me in my eye and she says, I know what happened. And he talked to somebody. And at that point, I didn't know if I was coming back to the police department or not. Yeah. I didn't know if I could physically mentally do it. But I knew for my family, I had to talk to somebody to get some help. Because I couldn't keep having these outbursts anymore. And that's what they wound up being for me. It, it seemed to someone on the outside that I had become, like almost overnight, a very angry person. And it wasn't that at all. It wasn't it's anger. It was uh, when this uncontrolled adrenaline is going on, it, it's just like I'm trying to stop the whole world so I can just breathe a little bit. Correct. Absolutely. Uh, but I got some help, talked to stress coaches, talked to some trauma counselors. Uh, and I told my wife while all this was going on, I started reaching out to other officers that I knew had been involved in shooting. And I felt my best when I first started talking to them in a kind of a peer support setting. Emotionally, they told me things that I felt. So I'm like, oh my God, And so I no, I no longer had the idea like I was going crazy or I, I was having these, these isolated feelings for no reason. And it kind of birthed the Project Hurt. And uh, what came out of that, about 14 months after, I, after my shooting, another sergeant that I worked with got, actually got ambushed and shot in the face twice, and he survived. And uh, we, I started talking to him. I told him things he would experience, and sure stuff happened. He would call me come every couple of days saying, oh, my God, you said that would happen, and it happened. Yeah. And so we were like, how do we, how do we get on a path to talk to other officers outside the police department in the Pittsport setting. And that was the birth of Project Hurt, a Pittsport group for wounded and injured officers and also deal with cumulative stress. And that's, that's something that was so needed is for us to just talk to each other and say, are you all right? Because I wasn't always all right. And here's what happened to me. And here's what I had to do. And here's how where I'm at today. Would you describe your life today as okay or uh, still bothered or, or what term would you use so i would consider my my, my 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 life or my term blessed i was actually able to come back to work about four or five months after my shooting uh, i know a lot of officers are not physically or mentally able to come back so i do thank god for putting me in a good place to come back to work like i say i now have 20 years on in my police department and, and making plans for retirement hopefully the next five to eight years i hope to hear i can't wait to hear about your retirement before we leave uh sergeant though give people your website address one more time to get more information project hurt h-u-r-t dot org o-r-g 
and you're also on Facebook, just do a search for Project Hurt, H-U-R-T. We're going to have to have you back on the show later on uh, another day because I know there's so many things you're doing with Project Hurt, uh, with other law enforcement officers in the community. I want to thank you so much for telling your story to us today. It's very much appreciated. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank our guests for coming on the Law Enforcement Talk radio show. The Law Enforcement Talk radio show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous AM and FM radio stations across the country. We're always adding more affiliate stations. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, which is always free, please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three. I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.